Okay. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm ready for the word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it is alive. Thank you that it is active, Lord. Thank you that it is there to teach and instruct us. I pray as we open it together now that you would be speaking to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say hello to everyone across our locations. I want to give a particular shout out to those of you that are joining us at Church Online. It's great to have you with us today. We're in the second week of a teaching series called The Book That Changed the World. And last week we had Elspeth with us. She brought us a fantastic message looking at the question of, can I trust the Bible? And I want to say if you missed that, you missed a fantastic preaching. You need to go back and catch up with it this week because it really does set the foundation for everything that we're going to go on to explore over the course of this series. But I am excited to build upon what Elspeth shared. So we have the Bible. It's reliable. It's relevant. It's applicable to the way that we live our lives. The danger is we can accept all this as true yet rarely ever engage in what it says. We could leave it weeks at a time just catching dust on the bedside table, not exploring what might be said in it. And I don't say that so that you go home, you feel absolutely awful about your lack of biblical knowledge, but rather our heart, our desire with this series is as we take an overview of the Bible, you're going to be inspired maybe for the first time or maybe afresh to dig deeper into God's Word and see that he has got something to say to you through it. Here's what I believe about the words of God. I believe that God's words are absolutely transformational. God speaks, things change. All through this Bible, what do you see? God speaks, things change. When I look in creation, it says that God spoke and things happened. God's words are transformational. And here we have the Word of God. Or to be more exact, we have over 700,000 words. We should be curious about what it says. And the reality is, most of us are. After all, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. The Bible has sold over 5 billion copies. Every year, another 100 million are printed. That's a lot of copies. To put that into perspective, Take The Lord of the Rings. That's the best-selling fiction book of all time. It's a good book. It's not the best book, but it's a good book. That's sold a total of 150 million copies worldwide, which means the Bible has sold over 30 times more. And not only is it the best-seller, it's also the most translated book of all time. So regardless of your belief system, its popularity is clear, and we should be curious to see what's contained in this book. Here's the good news. That is what this series is all about. We're going to take some time to explore some of the key themes and some key points from this book. And I'm going to start with you today by looking at the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch which simply means the five. Sometimes you hear them referred to as the Torah, which means the law, which references the law that was given 
to Moses there. They were written or compiled probably by Moses around the period of 1400 BC. You know, when it comes to the Old Testament, I think we can have a little bit of a strange relationship with it. There's some stories in here, right, that we all know and love, the ones that appear in all of our kids' story Bibles. Things like Noah, you know Noah, we're all familiar with Noah, and he takes the animals into the ark two by two. You can tell that I've got a, a toddler at home. I'm not going to sing to you. You are safe. Don't bow to peer pressure. <laughs> but then there's some stories, hey, that are altogether darker. Some that we find a bit hard to make sense of. Why has that appeared in the Bible? After all, when I read the story of Noah to my daughter Ellen in her picture Bible, the last page never ends up with a depiction of Noah naked in his tent, drunk out of his mind. <laughs> But that's the reality of what we find in the Bible. And so it can feel a little bit confusing. Where does this all fit together? And so I want to say that sometimes we need to take a step back, and we need to get a bigger perspective of what's going on in order to understand how it all fits together. I wonder, have you ever seen a photo mosaic? These things were super popular, I guess maybe eight, ten years ago. You know, everyone was using Facebook and creating their own, those sort of things. I've never been a man of my time, so I'm quite happy to go back into the past. Let me illustrate how much of a man not of my time I am. You might think I'm a young guy. Well, this week, something excited me far too much for my age. We moved my daughter Ellen from her nursery into her big bedroom. That meant we had a spare bedroom in the house. That has become my office. I got unreasonably excited for my age about the fact that I have an office at home. But let's take a look at a photo mosaic together today. And I need your input. I'm going to ask you this. What can you see? This is not a trick question. What can you see? You can see a giraffe. Some nature pictures, right? What about if we zoom out one? A few more pictures. All natural world. What about if we zoom out one more? Have you got it yet? Have you, anyone spotted it? Don't spoil it for your neighbor. What about if we zoom out the whole way? It's the face of Jesus. Or we all know that Jesus wasn't blue eyed and didn't have light brown hair, but when you go on the internet, it's quite hard to find a realistic <laughs> picture of Jesus. Must be something to do with the lack of photography back then. But I think this is a really good analogy for the Old Testament. Because sometimes when we get down into the individual pictures, it can be hard to see how the whole thing comes together. But you know, when we see a shape and a pattern begin to emerge, all of a sudden it becomes clear. Because we see that they're not just individual, unconnected stories but they all link together and they all come to one continued story that points towards Jesus. And that is the perspective from which I want to explore the Pentateuch with you today. So I'm going to start off in my study of the Pentateuch with you in a position that you may not have expected. We're going to start off in the book of Luke. 
You aren't seeing that coming. You thought we were going Genesis. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, the context is this. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's appeared to two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and now he's appeared in the room of disciples. And he's saying to them, didn't you get it? This is what I was trying to talk to you about the whole while before I went to the cross, that I must suffer, and that in the end I would rise again on the third day. And it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it all was pointing towards me. It was all pointing towards me. It's all about me. You know, if we went to Timothy, if we had time, and we explored what Paul says to Timothy, it just reinforced this point that it's all part of a continued story that points toward Jesus. So let's open our Bibles then. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's where you thought we were going to go to start with. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, God. In the first four words of our Bible, we're introduced to a really important concept about the nature of God. Because what doesn't it say? It doesn't say this, in the beginning, the gods. Pick and choose whichever one you want, they're all the same. It says, in the beginning, God. There is one true God, and he was in the beginning. And what does it say he was doing? It says that the earth was formless, it was empty, it was void, you read in some translations. And he was bringing order from chaos. In fact, if you look at the creation story, you could surmise that what Jesus, what God was doing is he took chaos and he creates a garden. He's bringing order to chaos. And then we read the creation story and we come down to verse 26 of chapter 1. And we're introduced to another really important concept about the nature of God. It says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So here we come, and it, for those of you who are slightly more observant, you might have sort of picked up a little tension in what I've just said, because you'd be like, well, John, you just said there's one true God. Yet here God refers to himself in the plural. He says, us. So what's going on there? Well, this is the first passage we come to where we see an allusion towards the Trinity. And that is that God is three in one. One God, three persons. He is triune, three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is why when we get to the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus says, oh, my work is to do the will of the Father. Talking of God the Father. Yet, 
in the very same passage, he refers to himself as God. Three in one. Now you might be listening online and you're thinking, that is just too much to wrap my head around. I'm not sure I can fully understand that. And I say that's okay. Because with God, there's always going to be a sense of mystery. There's always more than we can fully get our head around. You know what I discovered this morning? I've got a pretty small head. When I put my head warm mic on, I realized that I had to reduce it right down. So I may be in particular and big that God is bigger than the size of my mind. With God, there's always going to be a sense of, you know, beyond. It's not that God is irrational. It's that he's supra-rational. You know that prefix supra means beyond what we can fully understand. God is bigger, and we should be happy to live in that sense. And so we have God, and what the Trinity says is something so interesting. It says something about the nature of who God is. Because the Godhead, three in one, are functioning in perfect unity. It's like God himself is a community. And what does it say? It says that we were created in his image. So we are designed, we are wired to do life in community with those around us. We are wired, we are designed to do, have a relationship with God and with those around us. That is the way in which God creates us. You know, it says that the Trinity, the, God, the Godhead that we see, there's so much love between them that they wanted to share that. And so they created humans. I'm sure you can all identify with that desire where you want to share something with someone else. About two months ago, um, beginning of the summer, I stood in our garden and it backs onto an open field. We live in quite a rural area. And in that field was this deer and her, her baby fawn, and they were grazing, the sun was beginning to go down. You know, I had this desire that I must go back in and get Hannah, my wife, who was inside, to come and see this as well. So I ran and crept inside, and we looked at the steer and the fawn, and eventually they scampered off into the wood. But there's this sense they wanted to share that. It's the same with Godhead. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to share in his creation with us. Isn't that amazing what it says about the nature of God, that he is relationship? And so we see that God creates mankind. He creates humankind and places Adam in this garden. And God looks at his whole creation, and he says, it's really good. It is really good. You know the first thing that God says isn't good is when he looks at Adam and he sees that he's on his own. He says, that's not good. That's not good. You see, God senses it's not good for man to be doing life on his own, and his solution is interesting. Because what he doesn't say is, he doesn't say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to schedule in some more one-to-ones with Adam. I'll come and we'll, we'll do a bit more time together. We'll go to twice a week this week. He says, no, I'm going to create the first context for human relationship, and he creates Eve. See, we are wired for relationship. I want to just hang here for a moment, because you know what? I believe that everything in God's creation has natural conditions in which it's designed to flourish. I do a little bit of gardening. I know this, if I take a pot in my greenhouse and I put some dry compost in it and I pop a seed in it and I leave it in the hot greenhouse, do you know what's going to happen to that seed? Not a lot. 
If it does manage to germinate, it's going to wither and it's going to die. Unless I add some water. Because then it's got all the conditions that it needs to grow and flourish. And I want to say this to some of you. Some of you are trying to do life on your own, in isolation, and you're wondering why you're not flourishing. You're not living in the conditions in which God designed you to flourish. He designed you to flourish when you get in community and do life with other people. And that, I think, is one of the beauties of the local church. Because not only do we come together and we lift the name of Jesus high, which is right and we should, but there's also this opportunity to come together and to do life in community with one another. That's one of the reasons that we're really passionate about small groups here at C3, that we call C3 groups, because we want to see you get in the context that God designed you where you can be encouraged, challenged, inspired, to grow into all that God has for your life. So here's my challenge to you. If you're trying to do life on your own, stop it. Get with some people. Grab some people. Gather them around you. Start a group. Lead a group. Get part of a group. But don't try and do life outside of the conditions that God designed you to flourish. I know we've drifted a little bit from the, the Genesis story, but it's all in there. It's all truth. And what we see is that God places Adam and Eve in this garden. And he says, it's there for you to enjoy, all of it. Eat of all the fruit of the trees, except for one tree. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Eat of them all, but you can't eat of one of them. What's going on there? Well, that tree is often referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what it represents is man's free choice. You see, God created man with free choice. And here's a spoiler alert. A theme that runs through the entirety of the Bible is that God wants to have a relationship with you. And if we don't have free choice, a relationship without free choice isn't really a relationship at all. It's just servitude. So God gives man free choice. And the choice that Adam and Eve had was, do they trust what God has defined to be good and evil? Or do they try and make that decision for themselves? Do they trust that God has their best at heart? Or are they going to try and make this decision for themselves? Well, they eat of the fruit. They disobey God, and through that sin comes into the world, through the fall, we call it the fall of man, into sin. And sin fractures the relationship between God and man. And there's this problem of sin. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1 through to 11, it really highlights God's created perfection and then the problem of sin that enters the world. But the remainder of the Bible highlights God's solution to the problem of sin. Here's the good news. This book doesn't end in Genesis chapter 11. Because if it does, we're not in a very good place. If it ends there, we end with the Tower of Babel being stopped, being built, and the people being scattered. But it doesn't end there. There's this genealogy and it's the descendants of Noah. And it's like a trail of hope until we come to this character called Abraham. You might be more familiar with him being called Abraham. And God makes this covenant with Abraham. Oh, I wish we had time to really unpack the Abrahamic covenant because it's so beautiful and it's a redemptive picture, even the way God makes that covenant. But here's the gist of it. God's saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to all peoples on earth. We'll be blessed through you. What is God saying here? He's saying, yeah, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, but I also, through blessing you, want to show the nations a way in which once again they can come into relationship with me. You cannot get away from it. You're going to see this time and time again, that God wants to have a relationship once again with his people. He wants to deal with the problem of sin. Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. He's an interesting character. You should read his story. Jacob has 12 sons. And the second youngest is this character called Joseph. Joseph has got a fascinating story, and it's a good chunk in Genesis. I'd encourage you to go away and read it. But Joseph is a little bit maybe naive, maybe even a little bit arrogant. And it's his father's absolute favor, and his father gives him all these gifts. And his brothers despise him because of it. One day they say, you know what, we're going to deal with Joseph. We're going to chuck him in a pit and leave him to die. And then at the last minute they think, no, no, we can do one better than that. We can actually profit from his demise. So they drag him out of the pit, they sell him into some passing tra traders to be trafficked as a slave into Egypt. But the story doesn't end there, because Joseph ends up in Egypt. He becomes trusted by the master of his house. He gets put over everything until one day he is wrongly accused and convicted of rape. Then he's in prison. And one, he gets known that he can interpret dreams. And one day, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can answer. And Joseph ends up in the palace, and he can interpret through God's power Pharaoh's dream. And suddenly, he's second over everyone in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And that is not to mention that Joseph has some dreams of his own, interesting dreams. I tell you what, there's more drama in the 13 chapters that contain Joseph's story than in the entirety of your favorite Netflix show. You should read it. <laughs> It's exciting stuff. If someone told you the Old Testament was boring, I'd tell you, take another look. But here we've got Joseph. And there's a famine hits the Eastern world. And his brothers, desperate for food, decide they will go to Egypt and beg for some food. Little do they know that the person that they once sold into slavery would be the person that they will go and bow down before. God does what only God can do, and he restores that relationship. I just want to pause here for one second, because as I stood in my kitchen last night, I sensed that there'd be some people here today, and when I told you the very brief overview of Joseph's life, you thought, actually, you're telling the story of my life. The people that you thought you should have been able to trust are the people that you feel have let you down the most. Well, here's what I want to say to you. Take another look at the story of Joseph, because what you'll see is while people may have forsaken you, God has not forgotten you. People may have forsaken you, but God has not forgotten you. God's plans weren't thwarted. That promise he made to Abraham, that didn't somehow fall down. God wasn't caught out by surprise. In fact, 
the very thing that his brother's meant to use to destroy Joseph, God uses to use as preparation for the nation of Israel so that one day they'll be strong enough to break out of Egypt and into the land that he promised Abraham. I tell you what, some of the things that you're looking at in your life that you see as just terrible, terrible moments God can take and he can switch it around and he can use it as the thing that he's going to propel you in the future to the blessing that he wants you to have. And so what we see is he restores that relationship. And the people end up moving down. All of Joseph's family moved down to Egypt. It's thought that about 70 people moved down to Egypt. Years go by, Joseph dies, his father's died. And no one remembers Joseph. And this people, it was 70 people, have become a nation of three million. The Egyptians feel threatened. So they enslave the Hebrews. They treat them absolutely awfully. But God's still not forgotten his people. And ten plagues come and go, and then the Egyptians agree to release the Israelites. And there's this leader called Moses who leads them out. And the remainder of the Pentateuch is really the story of God leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and preparing them to enter the Promised Land. That's the first five books of the Bible. When we approach these books, there's often some common questions people have, or They want to know, what about this or that? And I just want to go through book by book and either answer a commonly held question or talk to some of the key points very briefly within those books. So let's start again in Genesis, shall we? Genesis, its very name means beginnings. When it comes to beginnings, here's the big question that everyone has. How did it happen? That's the big one, right? How did it happen? Well, here's the news. That's not the topic for what I'm going to talk to you about today. (laughs) But there is one foundational truth that I can tell you with certainty. God did it, and it was good. That's what the Bible says. God did it, and it was good. He doesn't specifically, clearly outline how, but God did it, and it was good. And if you get hold of that, that's enough for you to move forward. Another question people have is, hey, it looks like people lived really long ages in those early chapters. (laughs) does, doesn't it? I mean, you've got Noah, who was living to 950. You had Adam, who lived to 930. Methuselah was the oldest of the lot. It does appear that they had these really long lifespans, and then as sin took hold, they reduced. Another question people have sometimes when they read those early chapters, they say, hey, is this Bible then endorsing polygamy? Because we see a few instances of that. I want to say the Bible never condones polygamy. Instances are rare and they're condemned. And actually, what we see through the narrative of the Bible is the devastating consequences that it has on families. No more seriously than when we come next week and we'll see David and his son Solomon and the havoc that it wreaks in their lives. Then we come to Exodus. Oh, Exodus is a real thrill ride of a book. I tell you what, it's no surprise that that's where the big movie's made, hey? You've got miracles, supernatural events, you've got murder, it's all going on there. But the thing that you really should get hold of from the book of Exodus is this. You should get hold of the Passover. Because that's the real meat that carries through right the way through the Bible. You see, God was going to get his people out. He's not forgotten his promise to them. And he raises up this leader called Moses. You know, Moses is an interesting guy because he's not a perfect man himself. His story starts with him committing murder. But God uses him as the leader to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. And God sends 10 plagues. 
Now, he doesn't send those plagues because somehow he wants to watch the Egyptians suffer because he's like that and he wants to watch people suffer. In fact, before he sends one, he tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. But these plagues come. We see Pharaoh's got a hard heart. He's incredibly evil, so he won't let the people go. So one by one, we see these plagues come of increasing severity. Until at last we come to the 10th plague, where we're told it's going to result in the death of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. The point is that God loves us too much not to try and turn us around when we're bent in sin. And so God says, even in this, there's a way out. If you take a lamb, you kill it, and you paint some of its blood around the door, when the angel of death comes, he'll pass over your house. And he gives instructions on how this lamb is then to be eaten in the first Passover meal. That's really interesting. You might think, oh, well, that's a bit severe. You've got this little baby lamb and you've just slit its throat. It is severe. Animal sacrifice is a regular part of Israel's atonement for sin. And here's the thing with animal sacrifice. It's gruesome, it's messy, and it's costly. Because sin is gruesome, it's messy, and it's costly. And when you're stuck in sin, you can't deal with your sin yourself. But here's where this passage gets so interesting. Because fast forward a few thousand years and you find Jesus is sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. And in Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus completely redefining the Passover. Because it says this, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood in the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Can you see what Jesus is doing? He's completely redefining the Passover. He's saying it's not when you kill a lamb and you have that blood around your door. It's actually when you're figuratively marked with my blood that you can be free from sin and the judgment that accompanies it. Oh man, I wish we could spend some time here, but there's so much in here that God has a redemptive heart to restore relationship. He's not happy for us to be stuck off in that problem of sin. He's saying, hey, if you will come to me and be covered in my blood through salvation, that relationship can be restored, can be fulfilled. Then we come to Leviticus. Leviticus, oh, it's really all about holiness. And it really regards the Levites who God sets over the worship in the temple. And there's a whole bunch of instructions in there. And the big question people have around Leviticus is, how much of the Levitical code applies to me? Here's the answer. Some, but not all. That was easy, wasn't it? There's a whole chunk which really deals with something called ritual uncleanness. How they became unclean and how they could become clean again. That was time-bound. It was for a specific period of time that's passed. There's another chunk which is really basic morality. And those doors are absolutely true for us today. They're God outlining how we can live in relationship with him and live a God-honoring life that he can bless. And then we come to numbers. Oh, numbers. There's a lot of lists, genealogical lists in the book of numbers. That's where it gets its name from. Let me tell you this about numbers and the lists in there. Don't ever think that they're unimportant. Because each person had a name. And if for no other reason, and there are plenty of other reasons you should study them, be reminded of this, that God doesn't look out and see a number. He sees a name and he sees an individual. 
You are not just one of 350 people sat in this auditorium this morning. You are a son and a daughter. And the numbers goes on, and it really centers around these five characters. You've got Moses, who we talked about, his sister Miriam, brother-in-law Aaron, and Joshua and Caleb. You see, when they come out of Egypt and they approach the promised land of Canaan, Moses sends these 12 spies into the land. And 10 of them come back with this report. They say, oh, man, it is a great land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know, maybe in today's language, they would have said, oh, it's free McDonald's everywhere. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you don't think that's milk and honey, but <laughs> it's a great land. It's fantastic. We would thrive. We would flourish there. But there's one problem. The people are too strong for us. They're too big. We will never take the land. Then there's these two characters, Joshua and Caleb. They come, and they have a slightly different report. They say, yeah, they're right. It is a beautiful land. It's a great land. We would flourish there. But you know what? The people are strong, but we've got a God who is stronger than the people that are strong. Oh, I want to encourage some of you, because what happens in that story is because they listen in unbelief to the story of the ten, they go round and round in the wilderness for years until a whole generation has passed. And some of us, I think, sometimes we're going round and round the same problems in our life. And we haven't taken the step of faith that God would desire for us. And I think part of the problem is we haven't done what Joshua and Caleb did. They looked back and they remembered the God that got them out of Egypt was strong enough to deliver them into the land that he had promised. Some of you need to take a look back at some of the things that God's done in your past to give you the faith and the strength for what God has for your future. Oh, and then we come to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses is an old guy here. He knows he's not going to enter the promised land. But what's really interesting is that this is a book that Jesus really loved. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy more than any other book. You know when Jesus is asked, you can see it in the book of Matthew, what is the most important command? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The three temptations Jesus faces, he answers each with a passage from Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, and so when the devil says, why don't you take a stone and turn it into bread? Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's Deuteronomy. When the devil says, why don't you throw yourself down from the temple? He says, no, don't put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy. When he says, bow down to me, and I will give you all the nations of the earth. Jesus says, no, no, worship the Lord your God and him only, Deuteronomy. This is a book that Jesus really loved. And Moses is really an old man, as I said, and he's setting the law again. That's where the name Deuteronomy comes from. It means second law. And he's saying, look, I want to highlight to you the blessings of obedience, but also the perils of disobedience. If you honor God, you worship him, he will bless you in this land. But if you don't, it's going to result in you being taken out of this land. But Moses seems to sense even there that because of their sinful nature that they will choose to go against God. And he points forward to the ultimate solution, the coming of the Messiah. You see, he knows that the law is not going to be the final answer, but there will be a final answer. That's when Jesus comes and he points forward to the coming of Jesus, the permanent solution for our sin. Oh, we've out of time, but I want to encourage you this week, get in the Pentateuch afresh. See it through fresh eyes. See God's heart for relationships. See where you see his redemptive heart for people. 
I believe you will be inspired and encouraged as you approach those stories from that framework and from that pattern. As you see in Genesis, that there's this created perfection, but that sin broke the relationship. But God didn't leave us in that situation. He's got a solution to that problem. In Exodus, that God's not forgotten his people. The promise he made to Abraham is secure. And his promise to you is that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. In Leviticus, that God wants to have a relationship with you and how you can live a life that is honoring to him. In Numbers, be encouraged not to fall back in unbelief, but to be confident that if God has done it once, he can do it again. And then in Deuteronomy, as it all comes back round and points towards the Messiah. You know what? I talked about how we were wired for a relationship. We're wired to have a relationship with God and with those around us. And maybe you've been trying to live life and put things in that gap which only God is designed to fill. And you're feeling like, oh, it's just not doing it. There's still something missing in my life. Well, you're designed for a relationship with God. So I want to encourage you as you explore the Bible afresh this week, and I really hope you do, that if you've been having this image of God in the Old Testament as an angry man holding a stick ready to beat you down every moment you slip out of line, that you'll see it afresh. And you'll see, in fact, that he's a God with his hand outstretched, but it's outstretched in relationship to you. For those of you that are joining us online, I'm going to hand you back to your service, Pastor. But here today, can we stand? Can we worship our Savior, who is the solution? that we see right from Genesis through to Revelation. Then sings my soul